0: if you actually look at the data, day-by-day day, moves in the S&P 500 have not been all that high, despite all the drama that's been building around the debt ceiling and then the AI hype. So, uh, you know, in general, I think the market's been a lot less exciting than the media has kind of portrayed it. And while all the talk of how narrow the market breadth has been over the last couple of months and throughout this year, uh, while that's true, really the NASDAQ and the mega cap growth names are just playing catch up to uh, severe underperformance last year. If you back out the chart, a couple of years, you'll see that value and growth are, are not that far apart. So in my opinion, these are kind of healthier trends uh, versus some of the scary uh, narratives played out there by some folks uh, commenting on the market.
1: Hello, everyone. and Welcome to the Investing Experts podcast. My name is James Ford, and I'm joined today by fellow essay contributor, Mike Zaccardi. Mike, thanks for coming on.
0: Thank you, James. Good to be here.
1: A lot of people are looking at recent rallies in stocks, calling it the S&P 5, since you have those five companies pretty much leading a lot of the gains. Now, we had uh, reasonably strong economic data coming out. And one of the things that I've seen, uh, we've seen a substantial repricing in the kind of Fed futures and the idea that the next Fed meeting could give us another rate hike. Uh, Any thoughts on that?
0: Yeah, that's exactly on point. Um, so we look at economic surprises, really uh, around the world, we see the United States economic surprise index really taken up, you know, China's definitely turned lower, and we've had some unsettling inflation data over in Europe, and even Germany is now confirmed to have two quarters of negative GDP growth. So US has kind of returned to the leading economic player, um, at least relative to surprises in the last several weeks and you know that's bled into the CME fed fund futures market where we see uh looks like more likely than not another quarter point rate rise at the June 14th meeting you know in just a couple of weeks and you know right now following the debt ceiling stuff it looks like that could be it there was a little funky action going on in that in those trading markets last week because the fear of default lifting some near term t bill yields so that was kind of playing games with the fed funds market in terms of expectations on rate rises. So we're going to get that kind of out of the system for the most part assuming the debt ceiling is passed tomorrow. But I expect I think we'll get that quarter point hike on June 14 and you know maybe that's it. Either way though, we shouldn't have too much change in the fed funds rate during the back half of the year. Market pricing is thinking, you know, maybe December or January in terms of the first cut but you know you got to look at the fed funds futures market with a little bit of nuance because it's not as if the market's pricing in let's say like one cut by january next year it's really pricing in the high probability of no cuts or the low probability of several rate cuts depending on if we get like an economic shock that's just sort of the bias of the fed fund futures market so that's something that investors should always kind of uh, take with a grain of salt when they look at that market. Anyway, that's just a little extra insight into the Fed funds market. But yeah, we'll we'll get a, uh, another slew of major data this week. We get a ton of employment data, uh, anything from the, the JOLTS report, ADP, weekly claims. And of course, Friday, we get our big May non-farms payroll number, which is expected to show about... Two hundred thousand jobs created, maybe a little less than that, and you know, all all it really takes is one negative print on payrolls to quickly change the narrative from Fed hike to a pause or even you know a cut before long. So it'll be a shock if and when we get that first negative print, but that very well could happen during the middle part or back half the year. Uh, even though we've had, I think, something like 13 straight months of better than expected top-line employment numbers, uh, which I've written about quite a bit on Seeking Alpha. So we'll see if we get, I think, number 14 here this Friday.
1: All right. That's very interesting. You talk about that economic data coming out. I would love to know what your take is on perhaps the next 3, 6, uh, 12 months, of course, we've had what I've called the most announced recession in history, right? Everyone's waiting for that recession to happen. And like you say, we have had that data coming out, you know, supporting the idea that perhaps uh, the US economy is a bit more resilient, that we could get that soft landing. History uh, wouldn't support that. But what are your thoughts? Do you think that uh, we are going to achieve that soft landing or do you see us uh, turning down?
0: Yeah, so that's kind of the the big question here. We've definitely drifted more towards that camp of a soft landing, um, even potentially, you know, no landing at all, which would be quite remarkable given the speed at which the Fed has hiked rates. But, you know, let's take a look at the data, right? So we've got the Atlanta Fed GDP now model for Q two tracking in the high ones. Uh, we've got consensus GDP forecast for this quarter, a little bit lower than that, but easily above one percent. It's where we get into Q3, Q4 of this year when the real expectations of an economic contraction hit. It definitely wouldn't be a long term thing uh, based on everything we see now. But like you said, this recession kind of has been forewarned like no other, and it keeps kind of getting pushed back as consumer spending data continues to run pretty decent and the labor market, especially, is running so hot. Um, you just really can't have a recession in that kind of environment. So, we definitely need to see some uh, evidence of changes in economic data. I think if we get any of that, it's gonna be uh, fairly short-lived. Um, the Fed has plenty of tools in their ammo now. If we do see uh, some kind of shock to uh, support the markets, uh, given that they've lifted rates so much. But at the same time, you know, the Fed is continuing on their quantitative tightening, which isn't getting a lot of press right now, but that seems to be going fine. Yeah, I'll just be watching some of the big economic uh, indicators out there. Of course, the monthly employment reports, but you know, those tend to be extremely backward looking. We can keep looking at the leading economic indicators for signs of further weakness. That's been maybe maybe the most bearish economic data sets that we've seen is the LEI reports released each month from the Conference Board. Claims data is important obviously. Of course, we had that Massachusetts fraudulent claims uh, snafu there a couple weeks ago. Uh, but that that continues to look fairly sanguine. Uh, retail sales is probably the area that we'll see um, maybe the most critiqued on a real-time basis. You know, We do get a lot of high-frequency data now on retail spending. And there's a pronounced move lower over the last year among all income groups. This summer, um, is going to be another period of revenge spending in the states. So it's tough to have much of a recession if folks are going out on one last, uh, vacation binge. So I guess if we look towards September, October, November, that could be the natural trough point of the economy. Um, as the, that final, uh, spending push on vacation and travel, um, wraps up. So that would be, that, that's what I think is the most risky point for the economy. Now of course the stock market moves ahead of the economy, right? So and the stock market has been moving higher now for the better part of 8 months or so going back to the the October low. So yeah, I think while the the economic story is is interesting, we do definitely have to focus on price action in the markets as investors.
1: Exactly, that uh, that is a very good point. And speaking of price action, like you say, we've rallied a lot. I would also like to get your take on the more immediate um, effects on liquidity, because I know a lot of people have been talking about this idea that, of course, now that the uh, debt thing has passed, they're going to start rebuilding that TGA. That is going to drain liquidity out of the market. We still have QT going on. So to that extent, with the markets overbought and what you might call some liquidity headwinds uh, going forward, would you say that this is perhaps... A time to to sell or to take profits? Well,
0: uh, I mean, I, I think certainly uh, if you've been overweight stocks, or especially technology stocks, for this year, you know, trimming some gains uh, might be prudent. But in terms of the liquidity situation, you know, we definitely see indicators in the market that that bear out that you know there isn't a lot of risk taking on on you know new, putting new capital into the market on the corporate side. So you look at IPO activity this year down huge. Uh, you look at debt issuance among, especially among small cap firms, uh, very, very weak. So corporations, at least, are taking all, all that into consideration. Uh, so it's not as if we have uh, a ton of companies refinancing debt at these very high rates right now. Uh, you look at maturity walls for both investment grade and high yield. I mean, really, you got to go out a couple of years before a lot of that those issues become uh, start coming due. So that's that. That's kind of a positive point for the corporate health checkup. Um, in terms of other liquidity, you know, especially entering the summer months, uh, we should definitely see volume dry up across markets. So we could see some whippy price action on certain days, as as you know, if someone uh, looks to enter large positions, that could move, move around individual stocks quite a bit. And you know, as long as we don't have any more of these uh, debt ceiling debacles. Um, what I think could happen is, uh, interest rate volatility could start easing. So that could, if that happens, that could be a bullish offset to generally, uh, poor liquidity, uh, measurements right now. So that's, that's one indicator I'm going to be looking at this week and next is that, uh, ICE B of A move index, which measures, it's like the VIX for the treasury market. That's been uh, incredibly high all this year, uh, as the VIX has kind of settled back. The move index is, is hovering above 120, which is very, very high. Uh, so if we get a pullback in that index uh, back under our 100, I think that could actually lend some confidence to you know corporate decision makers who are considering things like equity issuance and bond offerings this year. Um, and it would certainly be a tailwind for prospective home buyers in the United States looking to lock in a mortgage rate because the lower rate volatility goes, the smaller the spread in the average mortgage rate above the 10-year treasury yield is. So if we can get that to happen, that would be a nice, like I said, bullish offset to kind of softer liquidity conditions.
1: Right. Definitely. You make some very good points there. I think I, I find myself agreeing with you especially on what you what you're saying about the liquidity, that idea that, you know, companies uh, adjusting for this and to an extent that there is already so much liquidity that you could say so much debt that was taken on during that all well, that COVID relief that, you know, maybe the, the market is fine with, you know, the quote unquote liquidity crunch, right? And it's not gonna suffer. Now in terms of fundamentals, I would also love to get your take on the inflation debate because we've got some very, pretty clear data in recent months that you know we've got that disinflation. However, on the other hand, you could say, well, if the economy remains too strong, inflation could get out of hand uh, again. Uh, what are your thoughts on inflation?
0: Yeah, so if you look at some some real time readings on inflation, things are definitely looking better. Um, a lot of the three month annualized. Data points uh, show, you know, maybe about 3% annualized inflation. And then if you include more up-to-date uh, housing and rent data, you know, things from from like Zillow, Redfin, Apartment.com and the like, uh, we really see that the core services the, the housing piece, which has been causing the Fed to get worried, is looking a whole lot better. You know, of course, everyone knows the Fed uses cpi data that is uh, does not have very good up to-date metrics on the state of the housing inflation perspective. So yeah, the real time data is much more encouraging on the inflation front. so and you know more broadly, if you look at the stock market reactions to recent cPI prints, I mean they've been really a lot tamer this year versus last. So uh, investors have gotten a lot more comfortable with where inflation stands. And it's clear that inflation peaked in June of last year. Uh, so both the headline, uh, well, the headline rate will uh, have some struggles here in the next few months, because if you recall, oil and energy prices peaked in about mid uh, mid June of last year. So uh, once we get beyond the CPI report for July, We'll then be comparing CPI year over year to lower energy prices, so the headline rate may not be coming down as quickly. But the hope is that the core rate, uh, x food and energy, will start will continue trending better. But the Fed is not going to be happy with a core CPI rate of you know three or three and a half percent. You know they want to get down to that two two and a half percent target range. So those kind of point one point two percentage point movements and, uh, intervals are going to become increasingly important as we head into the back half of the year and into 2024, because, you know, like I said, 3% inflation doesn't sound bad, but the Fed does now want long-term inflation to be be stuck at three. They want to bring that down to definitely, you know, certainly two and a half percent. And that's what could warrant the Fed to keep rates in that higher or longer, uh, period. So that'll be something to watch as, as, uh, the quarters progress here. But other than that, you know, always focus, uh, within the CPI report at core services, X housing to get a gauge of what the fed is looking at used car prices, uh, are starting to show more pronounced downward movements, um, after a bump up earlier this year. So that's a good trend, but, uh, wage growth data continues to be, you know, one report is no hotter. One is kind of lighter. Uh, but wage growth is still pretty strong. And then one last thing the Fed pays close close attention to on the inflation front uh, are consumer expectations of future inflation. Uh, so that University of Michigan report that looks at near-term and long-term inflation expectation uh, data, uh, a survey of consumers, it may sound like it's not important, but it is. You know, People expect inflation to be high. They'll demand higher raises at work and that's that's a huge driver of inflation. So those are some things to watch. Uh, definitely encouraging signs on the inflation front, but yeah, the longer we go in time, the more those small intervals, the inflation rate are going to matter more.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, again, very good points, and I find myself agreeing. I've also heard a lot of people talking about this idea that perhaps even though the inflation is coming down, that's that uh, route to the 2% kind of annualised inflation, which the Fed is targeting might be a lot harder to achieve. Now, you've mentioned a lot of uh, very interesting data points, grounding your analysis on these data points. And we were talking before you also talked about how you like to use fundamental analysis and combine this with technical analysis. So I would love to know a little bit more about your own investment style and how you look at combining fundamentals and technicals.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. So, uh, yeah, readers on seeking alpha know that, uh, I like to kind of start out with a kind of a macro take and then relate that to whatever company I'm analyzing or, or the ETF I'm looking at. And then I dig into the evaluation component of, of a stock of a company, uh, take a look at the risks and, you know, what could go wrong with, with whatever thesis I have. Uh, then I look at uh, corporate event volatility catalysts options pricing, and then I get into uh, the technical take of the stock. So I try and kind of hit each company from kind of all sides. Um, I'm certainly not uh, an expert in any one industry or company, but I try and apply the same uh, analysis method across all the companies I look at uh, for seeking alpha. So looking at things from both a long-term and shorter-term perspective, I think just gives the investor more confidence in... Whatever position they may want to take, and knowing what important events lurk ahead and what price levels on the chart matter, um, you know that that does play an important role in how people manage their money. Even if they're not technical uh, technical analysts, um, I still think being uh, wise to the charts um, is helpful and knowing what the trend is. Um, so yeah, when it comes to combining the two on the, the fundamental side, you know I do have a background, um, you know, looking at financial statements and. Valuing companies uh, through my work as an instructor here at uh, the University of North Florida in Jacksonville, where I'm where I'm located, um, as well as going through the CFA program, you know, you, you definitely realize all the different ways you can value a security. Uh, ultimately, it comes down to you know what the cash flows look like and what the possibility is ahead that a company can maintain its cash flows or grow them as well as for the shareholder, what does the buyback and dividend situation look like? So all those things matter. Looking at the economic moat of a company is also very important. You know, What's its sustainability from a competitive edge perspective is key. But as an investor, as a technician, I recognize that maybe the best indicator out there isn't some obscure metric on a chart. It's simply the price. Uh, the price incorporates all the publicly known information on a company. And if we can spot what that trend is, that sometimes is the best harbinger of, of where things will go. So I try and check my ego at the door when valuing a company. You know, I, if, if I view a stock as being 30% undervalued, let's say, um, I recognize that there's probably smarter analysts out there. I mean, there are smarter analysts out there and investors out there than me. So I have to recognize that this is just my opinion. And this is certainly not gospel. I know a lot of investors can get, you know, kind of fall in love with a company and what they think the outlook is. And that's just a, a dangerous thing. We got to uh, humble ourselves and know that the valuation piece of a company, that's just one kind of uh, tool in our toolkit as of investors when we're going overweight or underweight something. So that's just something I would, um, I always at least remind myself when I'm looking at companies is to always... Um, not look at any one indicator as gospel, but weigh everything uh, as like one piece of the evidence when forming an overall mosaic um, and opinion on a stock.
1: All right, that, that's definitely the right approach in my mind. I also like to, uh, you know, lean lean heavily on fundamentals, but also quite uh, do quite a lot of technical analysis as well. And I have my own marketplace, the pragmatic investor, and you know, the pragmatic investors, you know, the investor that is is able to not judge. You know everything by a single kind of mentality, but be open to all those kind of different different views, different different approaches, and understand that you know, like you say, the stock market is is a complex thing, and like, like you put very well, you've got to you got to check your ego at the door. So we've talked a lot about kind of the uh, the macro outlook. Obviously, tech stocks very hot right now. On the other hand, we have some sectors that maybe have been beaten down. Me personally, I think we could look at those and maybe find some good opportunities. Uh, commodities, like you said, peaked uh, a while ago, and they've come down substantially. Of course, financials. Are there any sectors in particular that you're looking at uh, for the next few months that you think uh, could offer some some value?
0: Yeah, well, let's let's take a look at that. So, obviously, this year um, has been kind of the big three that we've kind of come accustomed to: tech, uh, com services, and uh, discretionary. Of course, you know, you back out Tesla and Amazon from discretionary and. Uh, that sector doesn't look uh, quite as good. What I have noticed in a few charts lately, and this is kind of controversial, but in the regional banking space, you know, we see some decent signs of a possible bottom there and just in some divergence numbers. Uh, technically, fundamentally, we still see very low valuations in financials and energy. Utilities have kind of pulled back on their valuation a bit. Healthcare has had a kind of a weird year. They had like that massive string of negative weeks, but then we saw a resurgence in uh, Lilly with, and then some flight to quality stuff with J and J that helped the sector. But in general, you know, you look away from uh, you know those uh, big five or so S and P stocks you mentioned earlier, and the market is uh, pretty lousy this year. You know, roughly flat. When you look at the Russell one thousand equal weight, uh, s and p five hundred equal weight, Russell two thousand you know cap weight. So yeah, there's just a lot of stuff not working right now. But you know the good news is earnings estimates are are starting to come, it looks like come a little bit higher. We've seen some major sell side areas lift their twenty three EPS forecasts for the s and p five hundred. and we've seen you know current year, EPS estimates kind of flatten out here to 220 you know give or take a few bucks and then looking looking to the out year um looking more like 240 or 245 and that too is held steady so all those dire calls from skeptics earlier this year that S&P 500 earnings would have to come way way down that that's just not materializing we're not seeing that and with the, the latest automation push and AI potentially driving uh, or at least sustaining margins where they are. I think we could definitely see upside earnings estimates this year. Uh, what that does to next year is hard to say. But you know, if you throw you know an 18 multiple on 240 of earnings for next year, you know the market isn't overly pricey here. And critics may cast shade on an 18 multiple, but the fact is, uh, earnings multiples have trended higher over time. The U.S. market is more dominated by higher growth, higher margin sectors today versus previous decades, and relative to the rest of the world. So, in my opinion, a valuation premium is warranted. So, yeah, I see the overall market is, is kind of fairly priced here. But I, you know, like the crowd, I was thinking at times last year that a deeper valuation reset was needed, um, and maybe we got that in October. You know, at the October low, the market was trading around, I think, 14, 15 times. I mean, that's not trough level in terms of bear market multiples, but it was definitely a healthy pullback from 20 plus that we saw in, 21, in 2021. Um, in terms of sectors though, boy, it's hard to be fighting this trend in tech. You know, you can look at some things uh, such as relative outperformance gaps uh, to try and spot when things get too frothy from a sector perspective against the market. But yeah, it's it's uh, it really is kind of that 2020 theme right now, or of those big mega cap tech stocks just powering higher. And you know, we need to see signs that other sectors participate before you really want to start rolling dice, getting overweight some value areas. And we're just not seeing that yet. Uh, so if we start to see uh, uh, more new highs, for example, in uh, the value sectors, that would be helpful. But yeah, I mean, for the most part, it looks like this gravy train of of the major tech stocks powering the markets higher uh, is going to keep going. So, yeah, no real big insights onto the sector overweights here. It's just kind of more of the same, you know, it feels like.
1: Right. Now, I know investors would be very disappointed if we didn't very quickly uh, cover the uh, recent earnings of NVIDIA. We've talked a little bit about AI. I know that I've seen a, a very uh, infamous kind of. Um, I believe it was from an earnings call back in '99, before the dot-com crash, where Nvidia was trading at an outrageous price-to-sales uh, multiple, and uh, you had the uh, the CEO come out and say, "Well, what did you expect?" You know, you and he kind of breaks it down and says, "Look, for this to make you money, you, you would have to you know, increase revenues for the next ten years." So we have um, companies like Nvidia now, obviously, I believe just broke one uh, trillion market cap, trading at very high valuation. I'd love to know your take, maybe fundamentally, although at this point, maybe fundamentals don't matter so much, maybe on a technical aspect as well, what your thoughts, are?
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, definitely a whopper of a quarter there from NVIDIA jacking up the next quarter's revenues by, you know, whatever, 40% up to some ridiculous numbers. So their growth uh, trajectory has certainly uh, changed, which is no surprise. And now we see the stock trading, I think, something like, you know, 60 plus times earnings, and the sales multiple extremely high, so yeah. But we're seeing follow through in the stock. You know, we saw that big gap up last week to three eighty or so, and now we're uh, and now it's in the trillion dollar club with a share price of about four hundred, um, lifting a lot of other AI related stocks with it. So yeah, uh, definitely has that frothy feeling out there uh, in terms of the AI trade. Um, at the same time, though, like no one was really talking about this six months ago, so it's pretty remarkable how quickly things have evolved and you know the next quarterly next set of uh, earnings reports are going to be interesting to see if the if the hype is backed up by actual growth in uh, sales and earnings among uh, other companies and also what I think is gonna be interesting is to see how firms like Microsoft and Google handle this because of course a lot of these big tech companies may have to upgrade a lot of their hardware and software to account for for AI so that could be a boon for uh, chip makers like NVIDIA. Uh, but if that requires heavy CapEx spending, you know that could impact profits a little bit with some of these uh, other players. But I would also encourage investors to think about bigger impacts than this. Something I've been writing about a little bit has been the, the positive impact it could have on small and mid cap stocks. Because once we get past all these big companies and their breakthroughs, at some point it's gonna trickle down to efficiency improvements at the lower end and smaller businesses. And if you consider how important small and mid-sized businesses are for uh, overall GDP growth of America, and really the global, the globe at large, if they can benefit from that, which I think they will, as products become specialized and tailored towards those enterprises, we could definitely see a lift up in some of those small and mid-cap names over time. So that'll be an interesting trend over the next couple of years to to look at, but uh, yeah, it's uh, I'm no futurist, but it's it definitely it looks as if AI is going to have some uh, extremely positive impacts for corporate profitability. And you know when it comes to the labor market with this sort of thing. there's always fears that uh, we we'll see you know automation will take away from from jobs. But you know the fact is, history shows that. You get these breakthroughs; it it creates new jobs that we didn't even know about. Could this be the outlier that changes everything? Oh, maybe, but uh, if you look at all the data points in history, you know this is things like this are a benefit to society and jobs and how the construct of the job of the labor market is, uh, and not a not a hurt to it. So I'm excited for the future. It, yeah, certainly is scary to think about some of what could happen, but. You have to sort of trust uh the long term trend in a sense that these uh technology wins um benefit you know just about everyone
1: yeah that 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 is definitely a an interesting point, but to be fair, we have had kind of hypes like this before right i mean a i now is the topic du jour, but you know in the past we've had other big narratives that have driven what's now in hindsight you know after this market correction you might call the bubble one of these bubbles of course was uh crypto and NFTs and that kind of space. Now, I'm obviously very interested in crypto. I talk a lot about Bitcoin to my subscribers and on Seeking Alpha. I'd love to know what your thoughts are on Bitcoin and perhaps the broader crypto market and maybe blockchain technology.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. So, you know, being a technician, I pay attention to the price levels uh, with a lot of Bitcoin and ETH. So, yeah, Bitcoin just kind of struggled after breaking out earlier this year to get above uh, thirty thousand was up a little bit this morning following the the dead ceiling stuff um, it looked like, so it continues to trade somewhat like tech. you know that's maybe its best correlation right now, and yeah, like you said, AI is kind of the new thing. Uh, we had the crypto craze a couple of years ago, other than then kind of the metaverse flop, <laughs> maybe uh, last year that didn't work out. but you know I think AI is different in the sense that this is something people are using. Um, I don't know about everyone else, but I kind of make it a point to use chat GPT, like Google and try to just open my mind to all the things that I can do. Even though I really don't know how I'll truly use it, you know, a year from now, I just want to be, I want, I want to keep playing with it and tinkering with it. Whereas with crypto, I didn't get too heavily involved in the space. I did, you know, trade some stable coins, things like that a little bit. I didn't get burned too bad at all. From some of the trans uh, what what transpired last year, but there's definitely going to be some scar tissue there among uh, investors who got into Bitcoin, you know, mm-hmm. sixty thousand above. Uh, but you know, price action is definitely better. You know, uh, Bitcoin bottomed, uh, I guess, close to a year ago now, um, and we never saw it bust down through ten thousand or so like some folks had called for, even around the the, the Sam Bacon-fried saga with FTX last year. So that was encouraging. So it looks like that's here to stay. But, you know, perhaps we're just further along the the hype cycle with Bitcoin now where some of the froth has come out of the market. And now we can really start to see what some of the longer term benefits of crypto are going to be. Because, you know, like, you know, like your readers know, we're more than a decade now into crypto. So we should start to see more maybe viable projects that harness crypto coming about now that we have a little more stability in the market. And less less volatility, certainly with Bitcoin, so that's encouraging in my eye. And I, you know, I don't know how that will be put to work. I'll leave that to you know smarter folks like you to continue writing and describing what the future may look like for that. But from a market perspective, you know, seeing volatility come down and Bitcoin ease, and then some of the, seeing some of the altcoins kind of go away, those are encouraging signs to me. And while the spotlight is off, maybe off crypto for right now. You know, that's just a natural part of the cycle that I think is needed. And yeah, once we figure out how AI can be harnessed, then I think, you know, we may see kind of a marrying of crypto and AI and just a more future-oriented, uh, a tech-oriented future.
1: Well, th- thanks for that, Mike. I do. I appreciate the compliments. Like you say, I think that AI ha- opens up a lot of doors. Uh, whether that'll open up a door for crypto as well, we will see. And now, before we wrap up, I would also love to get your take maybe on some of the international markets. I don't know how much you you follow those, but we have had, for example, you know, the China reopening narrative, which was kind of very strong, and we've actually seen China equities underperform. On the other hand, we've seen very strong uh, stocks in Europe, stock market there. But then recently, I believe a week or two ago, we got uh, data from Germany coming out suggesting or saying that. Germany is now in a technical recession. Any thoughts on those two in particular?
0: Yeah. Yeah. A lot of cross-currents right now in uh, overseas markets, but price action's still been pretty good. So yeah, uh, like you said, uh, the China reopening is definitely uh, not going as well as first hoped. Troubling data out of Germany, and then generally inflation out of uh, UK and other parts of Europe, not good. But at the same time, we've got Japan at 30-year highs. We've got The German DAX multi year highs. So these are encouraging signs from a price perspective. It's almost as if folks are kind of looking past some of these, um, I don't know, maybe near term economic stumbling blocks. And, you know, whenever you're talking about international markets, you got to talk about the dollar. Uh, We do have the dollar moving higher here, uh, which is interesting given some, you know, still decent price action among overseas stocks priced in dollars. So that's encouraging. So, you know, for the first time in it seems like several years, you know, we have international markets holding their own, even with the remarkable run in concentrated U.S. tech stocks. You know, it used to be that when you had just the mega caps, the, the, fan, the so-called FANG names leading the domestic market higher, we saw a terrible, you know, alpha, negative alpha among international markets, but we're not not seeing that anymore. So that's a that's a, a positive thing. And you know, investors uh overall are after you know 15 years of US high performance, investors generally are not all that enthusiastic about like Japan or German stocks. Like these are not sexy areas. So I think there's plenty of positioning that allows for further gains ahead for international markets. So For my investments, I definitely have a lot more international exposure than uh, maybe most investors, um, US investors, at least. Uh, So I would always urge investors to consider what the global market looks like. You know, the global market allocation, kind of your base case for how you should deviate uh, right now is about 60% US, 40% non US. So if your allocation is 80% US stocks, even though you have a 20% non US weighting, you're still way over invested in, in the US market versus the global market portfolio. So that's something I like to dive into when I talk with uh, the students at the university here, uh, sort of the construct of the international equity market. But investors, uh, should, I think, and my, just my opinion, that they should have a, a good allocation towards non US stocks, some of which, you know, some of those markets trade at very low. Earnings multiples, even if you account for sector differences. So uh, I know uh, uh, Jeremy Schwartz and I chat on Twitter quite a bit, quite a bit about U.S. non-U.S. markets, and uh, I definitely like some of the work that Med Faber does as well, uh, analyzing that. So definitely an in, in, uh, an interesting area, and some certainly some attractive markets on a earnings multiple basis for sure.
1: Exactly. Once again, Mike, I find myself agreeing with you a lot there. I've personally been looking a lot of international at international stocks as of late, you know, given kind of what's been happening lately. And to that extent you make a good point in the the fact that, you know, even though people talk about market breadth in the US being kind of concentrated there, if you maybe talked about market breadth quote unquote internationally, you are seeing the European stocks accompany the the US stocks in that in that way. And that may be um maybe a bullish sign of a, of more good things to come. Hmm.
0: Yeah, good point, definitely.
1: All right, Mike. Well, it's been a real treat having you on the show. Before we get off, please let everyone know where they can find you on Seeking Alpha and where they can find you just all over the internet.
0: Yeah, yeah. Real simple. Thanks, James. Uh, It's been a pleasure. Uh, Mike Sicardi on Seeking Alpha and then at Mike Sicardi on Twitter. Definitely appreciate the follows and the comments. And yeah, on Twitter, you'll find that I post just uh, only the best charts, I like to say. So a ton of charts. And I uh, include my own uh, personal takes on Uh, different areas as well. But uh, I definitely don't clutter up folks' feeds with a whole lot of uh, writing. It's just a lot of charts and a little bit of context. So that's the way I like it at least.
1: All right. Well, everyone, do yourself a favor. Go follow Mike Zaccardi on Seeking Alpha and Twitter. Thanks for listening. And once again, Mike, thanks a lot for coming on the show. All right. Thanks, James. Thanks again for listening everyone don't forget to like share and subscribe to the investing expert podcast and if you're still hungry for more podcast content go ahead and check out the pragmatic investor on youtube and spotify where i host my own podcast every week talking to investors from around the globe about their different investing styles and strategies and of course you can check out my own profile on seeking alpha again the pragmatic investor And just to wrap up, remember, anything you hear on this podcast should not be considered investment advice. This is for entertainment purposes only, and you should seek advice from a licensed professional before investing. At times, myself or the guests might own positions in the securities mentioned. You can find transcripts for all our episodes on the Investing Experts author page on Seeking Alpha, and links to the investing groups can be found there or in our podcast show notes under episode descriptions. Thanks.